Hello, Jeroen. Hello, Dylan. And today, once again, we've got another guest joining us, Joel. Welcome. Thanks for joining. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. I've been uh, hoping to have you for for some topic, and and finally we got a got a nice topic to discuss with you that popped up. And uh, yeah, you're sort of uh, I I think of you as somebody who explains things in a way that a beginner hears your explanation and a light bulb goes off, and an expert and a an Elm veteran hears your explanation and they say, "Oh, I never thought of it that way." You're sort of a got a great philosophical way of breaking down fundamentals, which I really appreciate. <laughs> Well, thank you. That's, that's really the you know the, the goal of mine when I uh, speak or write or teach. I usually like to be right on that boundary of uh, something that's practical uh, and like teaching like how to do a task and solve a problem, but also venture a little bit in the philosophical world of like why is this a useful solution and is there a bigger concept at work? Right. So, speaking of bigger concepts at work, what is that concept today? You want to you want to introduce it for us, Joel? Elm's universal pattern. What what does that mean? So, I think I'll just open this by saying that I think my favorite function in Elm is probably map two. There's a bunch of different modules that implement this. There's a maybe map two, a JSON to code map two, random map two, and all of those. They're probably my favorite. If you were on a desert island and you could only bring one function, would it be map two? It, it probably would be map two. <laughs> uh, technically, I should probably say and then because you can use it to implement map two. Uh-huh. And then you'd get like, it's like wishing for more wishes. It's kind mm-hmm. of cheating. But uh, yeah, if I'm only allowed to take one, it would be map two. Nice. Yeah. I guess you would also want to bring some data with you because map two without any data doesn't. <laughs> have any value <laughs> that's true uh, there's some bad pun here that can be made about date palms or something like that but i, I can't make it <laughs> if it was another language you'd bring bring rescue or something like that i don't know <laughs> okay so elm's universal pattern like so so what what exactly are we talking about here when we're when we're talking about a universal pattern like a universal pattern for what like what do you use this pattern to do Yes, I think the the universal part of it is just sort of the idea that map two exists for multiple different types. It's actually very common to see uh, different uh, types, both in core and in third-party libraries, uh, implement it because it's such a useful function. And at its most basic level, uh, I think of it as a way to uh, combine two things of the, the same type. So to be more concrete, if we talk about, say, maybe, I have two maybe values that I would like to combine, and I have a two-argument function I would like to combine them with, map two would be the way to do that. So I think of it as a way to say, two-argument function, two maybes, how can I combine all those things together? And then there's more functions. There's a map three, a map four, map five, etc. If you want to scale that pattern up to I three argument function with three maybes or a four argument function and four maybes and so on. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because in in the Elm community, we don't tend to talk about these things with these category theory terms because it can be it can be confusing and and often, you know, you hear this like, all right, chapter 10 of this book on Haskell is when you finally have gotten past the the introductions of category theory concepts, and then you write your hello world or something, right? And in Elm, we sort of go the opposite direction where, you know, 
if you if you get to these concepts at all, it's after chapter ten. You know, so sometimes we we go to the point that we don't we don't want to put terms on these different categories and concepts, but it, it is helpful to kind of have some way to think about them somehow. So sometimes I know people in that sort of category theory, theory world talk about like things in boxes that it's sort of like going between these different worlds of you have like a, a value that you can do something with and then like something that's like you you can't reach like a random value. If you have like a random generator of type int, you can't like go and touch that int and add a number to it and multiply it. So you need to like, you need to apply something to it in, in the box. And that's kind of what mapping is conceptually. It's like re- reaching into the box with, with a function that, so you have this operator that can multiply or some function that can take the absolute value of a number and you want to apply that function to the value that's in that box, that random generator. Yeah, I guess there's a few different mental models you could use uh, to think about what mapping functions do. I'd mentioned one earlier, the sort of the idea of combining. Another one that's particularly helpful with, say, types like um, maybe a result is the idea of abstracting over this like really common pattern that you might have, which might be uh, unwrap a value, uh, apply a function, and then rewrap. So like a maybe, if you want to do an operation on it, you might say, well, unwrap it if it's present, do my operation, but because it might not be present, we need to return nothing. Therefore, we also need to rewrap um, at the end. And really, the unwrap rewrap part is just a boilerplate. We have to do this all the time. And so a map function allows us to abstract over that, um, that pattern. I think there's also maybe a sense uh, where you can think um, of mapping functions as a way to sort of translate functions into ones that operate on your sort of wrapper type. So I have a two-argument function, and I want to turn it from a function that works on integers to a function that works on maybe integers. I can use map2 to convert it. Um, I think the fancy functional programming term there would be lifting, where you say, I have this two-argument function. I will sort of lift it into the the world of maybes. So yeah, those are sort of three different ways of looking at the same concept. And I think sometimes it can be really hard to get a good grasp on what this concept is. And so having multiple mental models can be really helpful, um, particularly because some of them don't work quite as well uh, for some types. So you mentioned the idea of a box earlier. And I think that's very concrete when looking at something like maybe, because it's like, mm-hmm. yes, I have a number and it is wrapped inside of a maybe, and I can unwrap it. That feels like a box. Something like random isn't quite a box in that mm-hmm. it's a future mm-hmm. value that you might get. Like a decoder is kind of similar. Mm. It's a mailbox in a way. <laughs> mm-hmm. hmm. Something will be delivered to it in the future, and when it's delivered, you wrap it in something? Hmm. I found that maybe it's probably the one of the easier types to use uh, to understand some of these concepts because it's really concrete. Uh, most Elm developers are familiar with how that type works, uh, and you can deconstruct it. Uh, you can yeah. Yeah. pattern match on it, do a case expression, and see what's inside at any point. And you can re-implement your own map, map2, map3, etc., pretty easily in a way that you couldn't for, um, say, the random generator. That's a good point. Yeah, because the, the actual internals under the hood of, of the thing you're mapping it can get a lot more abstract than with 
like a maybe as you say it's 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 to the point where uh it's it's tempting to just do a case statement all over the place with maybes and so i find that one thing that i look out for sometimes is if if a case statement is happening too often and if if functions are dealing with these wrapped types or these you know if you have a function that's dealing with random generator types or maybe types rather than ints or whatever underlying data type would you w- would you say that that's generally a smell like i i often think if i have a lot of case statements around maybes or if i'm passing these wrapped values it things tend to work really nicely when you have like functions that deal with sort of vanilla values and then you apply these map functions to combine them i would agree yes in general the way i i tend to write uh code and elm code in particular I like to separate what I might call branching code or deciding code from doing code. So if I were to say case on a maybe, I would have one function that cases and branches uh, and then it would just call another function that's that sort of doing function. And so even if I had the, the case expression, I would have a separate function that acts on the inner integer, whatever it is, which is just generally, I think, uh, easier to to read and understand, but also makes it nice to refactor later if you realize, wait, this case expression could be a map. I don't have to separate the business logic inside. Yeah, I find that like with, um, if you have a remote data value, for example, often, you know, code starts out wanting to do too much and, you know, doing like a case statement on the remote data type that if it's successfully loaded or loading or, you know, you you kind of render these different views in line. But it turns out to be a lot to wrap your head around to, you know, parse out the logic of, of the rendering logic for the successful view and the error view and all these pieces in one place. And it's really this general concept, which actually you have a, a nice blog post on this, I think, about staying at one level of abstraction. And you know, in a way, when you're when you're kind of unwrapping and then dealing with the unwrapped thing, by definition, you're dealing with two different levels of, of abstraction right there. Yes, yes. The I think that separation of sort of deciding code versus doing code, those are sort of two abstractions that you'd want to keep separated. Well let's let's talk about some examples of this universal pattern. With these different examples, you were you were describing how you know, different analogies might be more intuitive for different ones. It's also interesting, like, in a way, there are almost different semantics for for these. Like for for maybe, if you're combining maybes, the semantics are almost like and semantics, where it almost like short circuits if any of the maybe values are nothing, then it just short circuits through and the whole thing is nothing. But if, like, for example, with a JSON decode value, I guess it's a similar concept that it almost short circuits with um, with a JSON decoding error if there's an error anywhere. But that error carries information. So it could carry information from any any given decoder. Right. Similarly, I think you could say that with uh, something like result, where the error has more context about where it failed, why it failed, rather than maybe it's just we don't have a value. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting that it's not like... I guess it's not a very common pattern to just take multiple errors and group them together, but I, I suppose it could could just as well be. But I guess you can't really proceed because it assumes that it has the needed information in order to proceed in certain contexts. But it, like with a 
decoder, it's not going to attempt the other decoders. The first one that succeeds, uh, the first one that fails at short circuits. Right. There's there's no reason you couldn't uh, accumulate error. Mm-hmm. And I think later, if we talk about parsers, that might be something that that comes up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, so let's let's talk about where some places this pattern occurs. So so we've touched on maybe Elm JSON random generators. I think it might be worth talking a little bit more about uh, Elm JSON because I think that's maybe one of the places where yeah. it's particularly useful. Sounds great. And I think for me, the the metaphor or the the mental model that works best here is the idea of uh, combining. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when we're parsing JSON, typically we're pointing to a particular path in the JSON tree. We're saying in this field, decode this value as a string or an integer or something like that. Um, but usually we want to read more than one value out of the JSONs. So we want to say at this field, read this integer. At this other field, read this string. Uh, at this third field, read a Boolean. And then give me all three values back and let me combine them into some custom Elm value. And so we can write individual decoders for each of the pieces of data, but then we need a way to combine all three together. Uh, and that's where the, the mapping functions come in. Uh, if we're combining three pieces, it would be a map three. And yeah, for me, the this mental model, thinking of them as combining functions, I think is uh, most apt when mm-hmm. thinking about decoders. Hmm. Scott Welchin has this concept of like railway oriented development, I think he calls it. And he talks about this pattern for like a decoder or, you know, mapping things together that you have these sort of split tracks. If you, if you picture a fork in the railroad where you can split off between these two different directions and one of the directions is sort of an error direction and the other one is like a green success direction. So you, you know, map together a JSON decoder that picks off five different fields from a user and um, it expects them to be non-null and of these specific types. And as it picks them off, it's going along the green railroad. And if any of those is null unexpectedly, now it can take that other track and go to the red track. And suddenly, um, and you can imagine each one of each time you apply a map, it's branching off and there's another sort of green, a new green track for it branch off of, but it can always go down that red track. And the red track, it's just following along a continual path. So it's uh, instead of applying more data and combining it together, you just get that error straight through that short-circuited error data. I, l- I love the, the visual metaphor that he, he uses. We should definitely link to the, uh, to the talk because it's, it's worth looking at it with the slides. Yes, I agree. It takes a concept that's a little bit arcane and sort of pulls in a lot of different ideas from functional programming, not just this mapping idea, uh, and strips away the really sort of academic language and really puts it in a metaphor that's easy to follow. Right. And, and so I think, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of so in, entrenched in this Elm world here that it's easy to forget, it's easy to take these things for granted. But if we like sort of step back from it and talk about like, how would we deal with these things otherwise, you know, dealing with throwing exceptions and, you know, it's, it's actually really wonderful dealing with data in this sort of composable way, because you can, you can think about something as a unit and you can combine these things. And so, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure if, 
if it's just a reminder to appreciate what we've got or if there are implications for like how we design our code there. But I think that's a good thing to keep in mind. Yeah. How would you do that? Would you go with plenty of uh, case expressions? There's a sense maybe where in, say, a more dynamic language, uh, a bunch of maps in Elm might be more or less equivalent to uh, some kind of optional chaining. So like Ruby has what they call the lonely operator. JavaScript has the question mark where you do this sort of optional chaining. Knowledge coalescence, something like that? I think that's a separate concept. Mm -hmm. Possible, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, this new JavaScript uh, question mark dot operator and you see this in different languages yeah so that i've noticed this this is um and and the the sort of i guess before that operator in javascript um it would be you know user double and user dot right which gets really clunky if you have a long chain because then the you have to check every step along the way Right. And and so one of the things about that pattern that I've noticed is people say like, wow, this this like question mark dot operator in JavaScript makes code so much nicer, which it, it certainly uh, cleans things up. But then what if you're not dealing with something that may be null? What if you're dealing with something that may represent some kind of error? Or how do you chain different types of things? So, um, you know, Elm doesn't, um, Elm doesn't have you know, these sort of type classes for these different types of things where you use a single operator to do it. But it is so baked into the core libraries and the ecosystem and the ethos of Elm that you sort of apply these patterns and also the language itself because it doesn't have sort of exceptions that can just bubble up somewhere and be caught. And so you've got to sort of flow data through and you've got to prove to the compiler before you can just unwrap values and that sort of thing. So it's it's sort of baked into the language in a way. And things do compose together so nicely because this is not just taking five maybes and mapping them together, but you know, then chaining that along and turning that maybe value that you derive into a result type because you need to combine it with another result type from another place and then you combine those to build some value and that at that point things really compose together in a way that um it it it, it feels totally different than just using question mark dot operators in javascript it, it things really compose with all these other you know libraries and and chains there's also i think the really key distinction uh is that in a language like javascript things are nullable by default unless you check them, and then you can have confidence that they're not null. Whereas Elm, values are guaranteed present unless they're uh, explicitly wrapped in, in maybe. So we can sort of trust by default, and then we sort of mark the areas that are untrustworthy and the compiler will force a check. That's a great point. And, and this pattern, in a way, it's like intimately tied to this, this quality of, of the Elm compiler and the Elm language that you're sort of deriving data of different types as you apply functions to it. So, you know, if you if you have a pipeline and you do, um, you know, you pipe it to list.singleton, now you take a thing that was not a list and you make it a list. And then you, um, you know, combine that together with something else. And you, so, um, so th this is one of the things with this sort of applicative pattern. We haven't used that term yet, but, you know, you have a pipeline and you're applying these functions and it's sort of, modifying the type as you go. So with list-based APIs, which you also find in Elm, like, uh, you know, Elm HTML, you create a div and you give attributes and children, you, you're not 
changing the type as you add HTML attributes to that list in the div. You add a class, you add an ID. But when you're doing a, you know, json.decode.succeed user, and then you're piping that to endmap or some, you know, pipeline operator, you're, um, you're modifying that value from, from the starting point. And you start with this constructor that takes five arguments, and then you pipe it through with applying five different times. And it goes from a function that takes five arguments to a function that takes four arguments to a function that takes three arguments. And in that way, the applicative pattern is really nice with Elm libraries because it allows you to sort of transform the types based on what you're applying. If you pass in a decoder that takes an int, a decoder that takes a maybe string, it's going to expect that to be matching up with the constructor you started with and applying those. So Dylan, one of the things that you're saying here uh, that I think you're hinting at is the idea that in functional programming, the entire way we structure programs is as a series of data transformations. So we start with one or more input values and we slowly convert them uh, into, it could be the same type, it could be a different type, but we're slowly converting them until we eventually get the output that we want. And that's how we structure programs in, in functional programming. Right. Yeah. It's, it's almost like when you're, when you're writing code, it's like this little puzzle that you're like, I know I need a value of this type and, and how do I build it? I mean, we just uh, talked about this recently in our debugging episode, Yeroon, of this process of um, debugging types when the types aren't quite fitting together and how you um, figure out what, what type to put in the type hole. Sometimes it's really helpful to just break out these little puzzles and say, oh, this, I know I need a value of this type. Let me pull this out into a let and break it out into a sub puzzle. Give it a type annotation. The type annotation proves that that type would solve the puzzle in that chain of applications. And you don't yet have a type of that value that you promised with your annotation. So now that's your next puzzle to solve. Yeah, there's this, you know, not only is, uh, functional programming about transforming data, but another key concept in at least structuring uh, functional programs is breaking down larger transformations into smaller right. steps. You might call that decomposition, hmm. mm -hmm. each of which are smaller transforms, some of which might be reusable, and that's where we get into all the fun, deeper functional programming concepts are generally just patterns that we can use uh, to to do that, to break down a larger transformation into smaller pieces. Right. Yeah, I wrote this blog post, Combinators Inverting Top-Down Transforms, where I kind of talked about like the difference of, of thinking about a problem as these sort of composable sub-problems or decomposable, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, these little uh, breaking it down into sub-problems where you say like, um, I know how to decode a user, but I mean, where am I going to decode the user from? Wh what data is it going to be hanging off of? Is it going to be nested under a bunch of fields? Is it going to be um, continuing off of something? Or am I going to be decoding it based on if the role is admin or whatever it may be? But you can think about these sort of parts of it independently and then compose them together. Whereas that's like this sort of bottom-up way of thinking about things. Whereas this top-down way is just sort of reaching in and grabbing data from a JSON blob, which in my experience is what, um, what tends to happen when I've worked in JavaScript code bases is it's so easy to just pull in data from a big JSON blob that 
Uh, and then you, you've got this big JSON blob, you pass it through a transformation function that changes a bunch of data, but you're dealing with this like monolithic object and it's really difficult to think about. But with these sort of combinators, it's just, you can think about this one piece, but then you can take that piece and this other piece and build them up into one thing. So this sort of like universal pattern, I'm not sure if it's like inseparable from, from this concept of a combinator, but it seems like there's a link there. So, you know, we've been using the term universal pattern because I, I use that in a, as a title of a blog post. In that blog post, I was talking about map two, map three, map four, and so on functions. Those functions are combinators because uh, as we sort of talked earlier, uh, one of the mental models for what those functions do is they give us a way to combine uh, values together. And so it might allow us to combine three maybes, or um, I'd mentioned also earlier that it was a really helpful mental model for myself for thinking about JSON decoding. Say I can decode three different pieces of val- uh, three different pieces of data, and I want to combine them all into one more complex uh, piece. And so now I need a combinator. And that's really when we look at a library like the JSON decode library at its most basic level. It really only provides us with two types of things some sort of primitive decoders like int and string, and then a few combining functions. And that's that's basically it. Uh, and we can use those building blocks then to decode anything we want uh, into any Elm structure that we want. Uh, because a really key thing about JSON decoding in Elm that I think uh, is not obvious to people who uh, are new to the language is that your Elm structure and your JSON structure don't need to be mirrors of each other. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you probably don't want your Elm structure to mirror the JSON. Um, so I typically will design my Elm structure first to match my needs for my program to eliminate impossible states and all that good stuff. Uh, and then say, okay, given this Elm type and given this JSON that I have, how do I bridge the gap? And that's where the I will then pull out all the JSON decoder tricks to say, how can I translate between the JSON I have and the Elm structure I want? I'm curious about one thing. Like, what what do you think of the names map, map two, map three? Like, for me, map is about transforming one thing to another, and map two is, as you say, combining. So, would it make more sense to call it combine two, combine three, or is that even what you have in your mind every time you talk about map two, map three? That's that's a good question. There's a, a sense. So, the sort of base map. There's a sense in which you could call it map one. Uh, it's just sort of a continuation of that that pattern where you can take a one argument function and one maybe, and I guess you're you're only combining one you're kind of combining one maybe and just applying a function to it. I do notice that I I often start as the first tiny step if I'm doing a refactoring to a different data type. Let's say I've got um you know a value that's I'm just decoding a user from from some HTTP response and that's stored in my model. But now I actually want it to be a bunch of metadata. And user is one of those pieces of metadata. And I've got some other bits of metadata in there. And so the first thing I'll do is I'll I'll wrap it in a, you know, json.decode.map metadata, which has a single field user of type user. And now, so now I've done this map one, I've done json.decode.map with a record, now I'm wrapping it in a record. And that's a preparatory step for the next step, which is it's going to be json.decode.map2. 
and I'm going to add another field to that metadata field. So in a way, it feels like it does feel like map one, even though you can use it for just sort of transforming things. It, there is an elegance to the fact that you can change a map to a map two. Yeah, it, it really feels like a continuation of this pattern. Mm -hmm. And there's also there's a like... sense in which it is a transformation. It's just a transformation with two inputs. So you might have, say, two integers coming in, but a string coming out. So it is still a transformation, but it's less of a transform one item into another because now you have multiple inputs. Yeah, if you think about it with maybe, like if you, maybe.map is a very natural, like imagine, you know, when maybe is created and we have this maybe type and we're doing case statements all over the place and we say case just, take that value, I want to apply some function to it. And we're like, this is really inconvenient. Wouldn't it be nice if I could just pass in the function I wanted to apply when I wanted to turn this a uh, string to uppercase, I could uh, just pass in a string to upper function. And, um, and so we create a map function. And then we say, well, I actually, I want to combine two maybe values. And then we say, okay, well, I mean, how would I combine two maybe values? Well, if, if either of them are nothing, then I can't combine it into a single maybe value. So let's just, you know, turn it into nothing if any of them are nothing. And otherwise, we'll pass in those two just values that we have to the, the function that takes two, two values. Specifically, if you're, you're trying to combine them with a two-argument function. Yes. Where, because it's a two-argument function, you need both values to be present. Yes. So if both are present, apply the two-argument function to the two values, otherwise just return nothing. Mm -hmm. But I think your, your question, uh, Yaron, is, is really interesting. If we look at uh, what Haskell has done, They've chosen to not name this function uh, map2, map3, map4. They've called it uh, lift a2, lift a3, lift a4. And they've sort of gone with the, this other metaphor that I talked about, this idea of lifting. Uh, or sort of, you could think of it as translating into, uh, translating functions into the world of some other type. So you could uh, transform the add function to one that works on integers, to one that works on maybe integers. So lift A2 would be map 2? Correct. Okay. Is there a lift B2? So lift A, the A here stands for applicative, oh. which is a, a term I think that we've sort of been dancing around a little bit. Uh, it's sort of the fancy uh, functional term, but we haven't really gotten into it and defined it. Uh, All right, so maybe, let's do it. Maybe we should do that. At its core, really, what you need for something to be considered applicative is you need some kind of constructor. And then you need one of two things. You either need map to, or you need what in Elm we often call and map, which is sort of a pipelineable version of map to. And then? And, and map. It doesn't ship in the, the core libraries. That would be similar to like the JSON decode pipeline like required fun function, right? Yes. Yeah, so the JSON decode pipeline required function is a combination of what you might call and map and uh, that also allowing you to plug in the field name for convenience. So given either of those, you can describe a type as being applicative. So because maybe has a constructor, which is just, and it has a map too, we can describe it as applicative. And the interesting thing with map2 and nmap is they're sort of two different ways of expressing the same thing. And so given either of those, we can implement the other. I feel like this is like uh, like MacGyver skills for functional programming. 
All right, I need a stick of gum, a twig, or if you don't have that, I need... <laughs> if you're missing one of those, yeah. <laughs> you have nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I find that the map two is much more concrete, more easy to understand as a, someone who's exploring these ideas. And from my own personal journey into some of these more philosophical concepts, it is much easier to understand with something like Map 2. Uh, partly because you can deconstruct it more easily, you can implement it yourself with a type like maybe, and grasp pretty easily what it does. Um, we, we mentioned earlier, right? A Map 2 for maybe is just checking, are both values present? If so, apply this function, else return maybe, or else return nothing. And Map is a little bit more mind-bending because it, it plays with sort of partial application and some pipelines and there are more concepts you need to to understand in order to to work with it. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that you you sort of um copy paste from the docs for a library, you know, to build up a pipeline and but you you don't always fully think about exactly what it what it's doing under the hood because it, it would hurt your brain a little bit too much. So you have to like I think that's why, to a certain extent, it's helpful to to have some high-level concepts of how to think about these things, because you don't always have to think about the low-level things. The The goal is, well, I want to sort of um, apply a high-level, you know, combination of these things. And so you sort of associate and map with, with that concept, and you don't need to understand all the internals. I think one thing that um, maybe we should mention, too, something that can trip people up is the constructors, record constructors, feel like this magical thing. So to sort of, I, I like to demystify that by just explaining exactly what it is. So, you know, if you do maybe.map2, let's, let's say you've got like a first name and a last name, and you expect them to both be there, but you've got some user input fields, so you've got maybe values. So you could pass in, you know, you could have type alias user equals first string, last string. And you could pass in that user constructor, capital U user, to maybe.map to user, and then your maybe first, maybe last. And so what is that doing? Well, it would be equivalent to doing a function that takes a maybe, a, a function that takes a first and last, which are both string, and then builds a record with a field called first and a field called last. But what happens is this is just a part of the Elm language that when you define a type alias of type record specifically, this doesn't happen if you define a type alias of type int, doesn't happen if you define a type alias of a custom type, only for specifically type alias record type. It will give you a constructor function that takes the arguments of the type of each of the fields in that exact order and returns a record with exactly those fields and types. So that's an important thing to understand. And so I think it's a good exercise to like just write that maybe.map with an anonymous function or a named function, doesn't matter which you prefer, but write maybe.map anonymous function that takes first and last as arguments and then returns first equals first, last equals last. And convince yourself, oh, that's exactly what doing type alias user equals first string last string is doing when I pass that constructor instead of that anonymous function. It's exactly equivalent. So that's, I think that's a really good thing to demystify because um, it feels like magic otherwise. I think this, this confusion is maybe the fault of uh, a lot of the tutorials that are out there. And if you read uh, 
Elm codes or in the wild, you will see people will use that constructor because that's kind of what it's there for. Uh, but if you're just learning, say, JSON decoders, and you see something that says decode map to and then capital U user, and you see that type alias defined above, a very reasonable assumption that might be is like, oh, I'm giving that user type and yeah. map two is doing some sort of uh, reflection or metaprogramming or something like that based off of that type and knows to just magically construct a user out of the, the fields that I give it. When really map two doesn't want to be given a type, it wants to be given a function. Yes. So when I what I've started doing in my own writing, uh, and even when giving examples on the Elm Slack, is trying to always show the anonymous function. It's a little bit more verbose, and it's often it's not necessarily the concept I'm trying to teach, but I think it's useful to show it there just to avoid that misconception, so that it's very clear. Oh, map two, map three, whatever takes a function, not a type, as its first argument. Um, right. And that avoids some misconceptions. Right. And then you say, by the way, there's a shorthand for this function. Yes. Did you know that when you define a type alias for a record, you get a constructor function that has the same name as your type? And you could then clean up your or uh, make your decoder a little bit terser by using that. I think one reason why it feels like something weird is because we never use that function elsewhere than in uh, than in an applicative. You never, or you rarely see like user, your own uh, angles. Uh, you always see a record with first and last specified. Or I, I've asked around and people really don't like using the record alias name as a function outside of uh, an applicative. Right, because you can get the uh, the names of the fields mixed up. Because if you change the name, if you have type alias user equals first string last string now and then you you create a user by saying user equals capital u user and then a first name string and then a last name string now if you you know you probably wouldn't but if you were to change the order of first and last in the record alias now uh you're passing strings you don't get a compiler error and and basically you've um created a layer of indirection between what the field name is and the value that's being passed to it. Whereas if you just said user equals literal record, first equals string, last equals string, there's no getting it mixed up. And so you can avoid that confusion. For myself, I think it's less the being afraid of uh, changing the field names because I pretty much never change the order. Um, but it's more just the uh, readability. If you see uh, the user constructor and then two strings, it's not immediately obvious which one is the first, which one is the last. And so it's really nice for readability to have the field names as labels. Um, that's usually uh, less important if you're, say, doing a decoder, because uh, when you look at the, all the, decoder, the little individual field decoders below it, you'll see the JSON field names. And generally, you can tell from the JSON field names what they are. Yeah, or of the decoders. Right. So it's pretty obvious looking at the decoder, what's the first name, what's the last name, because we're going to be referring to the, the names might not be exactly the same in the JSON, and that's one of the really nice things about decoders. Uh, the JSON doesn't need to match, but I could probably tell uh, what, they, what they are. 
Um, and so it feels a little bit redundant to uh, copy that into uh, an anonymous function. And it also gets really long and verbose for larger records. If you have, you know, 10, 20 uh, keys in, in the record, then that, that can get really verbose, which I guess that maybe leads us really nicely into um, and map uh, version of uh, the sort of applicative pattern. We've talked a lot about uh, map2, map3, and so on, but those are going to be finite. Every Elm library you use is going to have, you know, map up to map eight or however they, they want to do. And eventually it's going to stop. I've yet to run into that limit for something like maybe. I don't think I'm combining that many optional values. But I do run into this all the time on JSON to code. Uh, because it's not uncommon to say I want to read 20 fields out of a JSON and combine them into some Elm object. And so that's where this uh, sort of pipeline approach becomes really helpful um, because now you don't rely just on something finite because the, the beauty of the the and map uh, which is sort of the I don't know if you'd want to say the it's not the inverse of map two it's the corollary to map two mm -hmm. there's a fancy term that we can use <laughs> for this but it's it's another formulation of what map two does but you can sort of chain it infinitely so if you want the equivalent of map 100 you could do uh, start with a 100 argument function and then just 100 pipes to and map. Yeah, right. And so to a certain extent, it's like a matter of personal taste. But, but why don't we talk about some of the more um, objective pros and cons between map n functions, map 2, map 3, map 4, versus, versus end map. So the, I think the big one is one that we've talked about already is you will run out of map, map n uh, at some point. Although you can always, if you need a map 17, uh, you can always implement it in terms of and mm -hmm. map because <laughs> it's equivalent. True. So if you find it easier to read your code, you could just implement your own map 17 using and map and then use the map 17 in your code if that's a style that you prefer. You could use some code generation to create map all the way up to 100. That, that would actually be pretty easy. <laughs> yeah, it would. <laughs> would it be a good idea? Who can say? Could, could you generate a map 17 from map 2 also, or map 3? Or... Well, you can generate all of these from map 2. Yeah, map 2 is the one. If you have map 2, then you can build all these things. I've, like, I've built so many libraries that have this at this point. Basically, like... I started by like going to the uh, no red ink JSON decode pipeline library and looking at the source code and being like, how do they implement these things? And like, how do the types line up? And and then you see like there's a, you know, it's like a decoder of of A to something. And it, it, it's... The signature is mind bending. It's still, yeah, that. it still hurts my brain to think about. It. And I've implemented it in libraries so many times now, it, but... It, you get decoders of functions, right? Something like that? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's like applying one of the values as, as, you, yeah. as you go through in the pipeline. Basically, you have a, a function wrapped in a decoder. You have a, uh, like a concrete value wrapped in a decoder, and you're saying, apply that value as an argument to that function. Yeah. Like if, the if function think... might be a 10-argument function, so you only apply one argument to it, and then you get back a new decoder that's, another, that's now a 9-argument function decoder, which you can then apply to another concrete value decoder to apply argument nine, and now you get back an eight 
argument decoder and so on. Yeah. And a, a decoder of a function really doesn't make any sense on its own. Really, it really makes sense in this context of an implicative. Yes. Yes. And that's where it's incredibly helpful. Mm -hmm. Right. So the, the error messages could be confusing. And that's one of the challenging things is like the, um, the map n error messages, when you get something wrong, are very clear and precise. The compiler isn't able to give information as precisely if you're doing um, end map because it doesn't know exactly how many things you plan to apply. So it can't give you the pr precision. So that's right. one. So if you've got an error in a say a map two or a map three, uh, because it's unwrapping all of them first and then saying here's a three argument function, apply all three of these arguments, it can immediately tell you, oh, argument two of three is incorrect. Whereas with the and map, because you're slowly applying arguments one at a time, and you've got your the process of applying them one at a time is convert a 10 argument function into a nine argument function, then convert it into an eight argument function, then a seven argument function, and so on. The error that you're going to get is something like, oh, on step five, I expected a function with this signature, but the signature here is not quite right. And it can be really a head scratcher if you're not, if you don't understand under the hood what's going on, if you're not familiar with the concept of partial application. Mm -hmm. So that's and definitely even if you a downside. Are, it's a, it takes some some deciphering, even if you're very familiar with it. <laughs> but you sort of, it, it gives you enough of a clue that you're like, something's off with my chain. And at that point, sometimes it's helpful to just, um, sometimes I'll just put in my pipeline of end maps, I'll just put like a debug.todo as one of the things in the pipeline to be like, all right, let's just pretend that this one is whatever you want it to be to satisfy the compiler here. Is the problem there or somewhere else? And then it'll tell you, if it's still giving you an error, the problem wasn't where you put the debug dot to do. If if it's not giving you an error, if it's not giving you an error, then you know exactly where to look. One advantage of the sort of nmap pipeline approach is that you can then combine that with other functions to create almost like a domain-specific uh, variation. And we've mentioned a few times the no reading JSON to code pipeline. Uh, and what they've done is they've taken this and map function and combined it with a few of the uh, helpers from the JSON to code library for finding fields at a particular location. And so you can say, I have this required field or I have this required nested path. Uh, and those can all just be piped one to another. And it becomes very nice to read. I think someone who doesn't understand what the pattern does under the hood could still understand what the code does because you could say, oh, construct a user using a required first name and a required last name nested under these sets of keys. Mm -hmm. Right. So one one reason I feel like people people may sometimes just reach for these sort of end map or pipeline functions to start with is just the workflow of changing from map to map two to map three back to map two as you sort of adjust things is a little bit clunky. I tend I find myself using. Um, Control A and Control X in Vim, which is increment number and decrement number all the time for this. Because what, what happens is you go up to the line where there's a map two. You can be anywhere in the line at the beginning of the line, anywhere before the, the two in the map two. You do Control A and it increments that to map three. So that's that's a little uh, trick that I use. And I actually personally tend to, to use the map 
end functions um, when I'm dealing with lots of small composable bits. But I, I think it's it's a matter of personal preference, and and there's good reason to just say, you know what, I don't want to deal with this workflow of add, changing the n and the map n every time I add something. I just want to deal with n map every time. Yeah, but now that you know that shortcuts, like no, you don't have any excuse anymore. <laughs> so I'm very curious about one thing because we've seen this pattern happen in a lot of the core libraries or core concepts that have been spread out spread out all over, like parsers, JSON, but when would you reach for this pattern? Like you're building something new. In in what cases, uh, what situations would you say it would be nice to have a combinator for for this API? I think that need often arises organically. You'll sort of start working with your uh, type and realize, oh, actually, I need a way to combine, and that's when this sort of thing will will arise. More generally, this sort of thing is usually only needed for types that have a type variable in them. So if you have a concrete type that's some kind of enum style value or something like that, you're not going to need a, a map to because there's no sort of there, there's no sort of inner value to transform. Yeah, but you, sh- you you could still want to combine two elements to be a single element, like a list of two things turned to well, them into a list of one thing. The combinators on the list, not the item itself. There are, uh, so we've been talking a lot about, uh, you know, oh, all you need is a map to function for this to count as applicative and also uh, a constructor. Technically, there's also a set of rules for that the map to function needs to follow in order to be considered a legitimate map to for this purposes. You can't just invent some function that's like, oh, this is a string concatenation. I'm going to call it map to and hey, I'm applicative. What's the term for it? <laughs> lawful? Lawful, right? I think so. Yes. I like that. It makes it sound like an outlaw. It almost is like, sounds like it would be cool to like not follow those rules, be an outlaw. I just think of a D&D alignment chart now. <laughs> yeah, right. That is the only uh, <laughs> definition I have in mind for lawful. So if you can explain, please do. So there's a few properties that have to be, and I, I don't know them off the top of my head, but basically it's like, oh, if you map the identity function, then the output must be the same. Or there's a few rules like that. They're called the applicative laws. So if you look that up, that's what we'll uh, show. Uh, but more generally, um, the signature for map2 is going to have variables in it. So it's going to be uh, a two-argument function, A to B to C, uh, and then your type with a variable A, your type with variable B, and then it will, in the end, create your type with variable C. And so if your type doesn't have a type variable, then it's probably not needing these functions that's interesting like what what if you have an opaque type like a some sort of money type and i mean i'm just trying to think of a concrete use case in that case there is like a thing in this box like you can't directly do anything with money types you need to expose an interface to deal with those but that said do you want to uh, expose some uh, money.map where you can then multiply it by a million or something you know maybe what you really want to do is expose money dot sum or you know some sort of domain specific functions for yes. dealing with the money that, that's exactly <laughs> the path that actually i've been down this path yeah <laughs> uh, i think that was actually probably one of the areas i first really understood mapping functions mm-hmm. i was creating a money type and it was not parameterized it was just a wrapper around probably an integer or a float. Uh, and then I realized, wait, but like it's annoying to always wrap and unwrap these things. 
this kind of looks like mapping. What if I created a map too? And then I can say, anytime I want to say, add two dollar amounts, I can just map to the plus function and that just works. Mm-hmm. Or map to the times function. <laughs> yeah, what does that mean? Yeah. Uh, which like, I think yeah. as programmers, we play very fast and loose with mm-hmm. math. And uh, if you mm-hmm. were in a more, say if you're working with physics, you know that if you multiply two numbers uh, that have a unit, then you also have to multiply the unit. And so if you're multiplying dollars times dollars, what you get back is dollars squared. <laughs> that sounds great to me. Sign me and up. Which in most probla- like applications is probably a nonsensical unit type. And I'll so you probably don't want the to allow arbitrary operations on, on the value. Another really interesting thing is that normally a map to function, that you pass a two argument function to it uh, to say, hey, combine these two using this function. And that function you give it can have any two inputs and any output type uh, because you can combine any values together. With something like, say, a dollar wrapper, you can't do that because the, in- the value inside is always an integer. And so the two inputs for your two argument functions must be an integer. And because you're creating a new dollar value as the output, the output value also must be an integer. So rather than having a generic function being passed into your map2 that's a, b, c, it's actually going to be int, 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 which is possibly okay. Uh, There's the concept of distinguishing between, uh, I'm going to throw some fancy terms out here, polymorphic versus monomorphic versions of these functions. Polymorphic meaning many shapes, monomorphic meaning single shape. So if it's just always an integer, then that's a monomorphic version of map or map2. And those can be lawful under certain circumstances. But in general, when people are talking about things like applicative, they, you mean the uh, polymorphic version. So how would you call the monomorphic version then? If you I ever have to make one. Generally decided not to give it a, a name like map2 and instead give it a domain-specific name. As, um, Dylan mentioned for something a dollar type, you might want to just create some domain-specific functions like add uh, rather than something generic. Uh, I think where this comes up maybe a little bit more frequently is if you have some opaque type that I don't know has a string in it, or maybe it's even a record or something, and you say, oh, I want to map over this user's name, uh, but you can't reach into the name directly. You have to, because it's opaque, so you have to have some sort of um, function that does that for you. And you might be tempted to call it map or map name or something like that. But because it is more uh, monomorphic and it doesn't really work in the same way, I found it's useful to just go all in on the domain-specific idea and just give it a name that describes what it does. So call it update name, and that better describes what it's going to do and doesn't confuse people with the more general concept of mapping. So it's a better experience for the users of your code, probably just easier to read it in general. I think one exception to this is actually in the Elm core library. And that is string.map because Elm allows you to map over strings. They don't have a map to, uh, but there is a string map and it is monomorphic because uh, when you map, the function you pass in has to be character to character. Good trivia. But I I think 
people are so used to mapping as this idea of like traversing a collection and transforming the values along the way that that one probably doesn't confuse people. And people probably even just use it and be like, oh, of course it's character to character and never thought of like, oh, what if I wanted to do character to int? Why doesn't that work? So you may have used string map and never realized it was different from all the other maps in the, in the Elm world. So one, one other pattern I noticed emerging when I'm dealing with sort of building up pipelines of things, I mean, it happens all the time. It's not necessarily just like doing building a JSON decoder or a random number generator. I'm often doing these pipelines and <clears throat> sometimes there are these pipelines where rather than just dealing with one specific thing, and we sort of talked about this idea of, you know, dealing with one level of abstraction at a time. So, you know, often you're dealing with one level of abstraction where it's just decoding a bunch of stuff, just right, building up a JSON decoder. But sometimes you're, you know, running a decoder and then that gives you a result. And then you're turning that into a particular type of error that you're combining with another thing, for example. So these sort of higher level pipelines where you're deciding you're sort of processing something rather than doing all the detailed processing. Often I want to like build something up into a particular type of value. Like, you know, if I need to take one type of error and turn it into, combine it with, you know, maybe there's an HTTP error that may have happened in one result and another type of error that might have happened in another result. And then I need to combine those and pull in some other data. So those types of pipelines, I tend to see a few different types of patterns emerging. One is I, I tend to see, like, sometimes I'll, I need to coerce something into the same type of thing. So maybe I have a maybe value and I have a result of an HTTP error and I have a result of another error type. So I might need to do like result.map error to get the two result types to have the same error. And then I might need to take the maybe type and do like result.fromMaybe and give it an error type if, if it's nothing. So those are sort of like some higher level patterns for combining, for combining things that I find come up a lot. And another one that I see coming up a lot in code that I write is I'll want to sort of compose together ways of mapping things. So I'll have like a maybe list or a uh, JSON decoder of, of a list. And I want to map the inner list inside of that. And in those cases, I'll do like maybe.map, list.map, and then apply something in there. So those are, those are sort of two higher level patterns that I've noticed emerging a lot. Yeah, so I think those are probably a little bit separate from this applicative concept in that they're just mm -hmm. tips for working with pipelines in, right. in general. I would typically not combine those with a, say, and map yeah. uh, pipeline. Mm -hmm. uh, if I'm, say, doing some JSON decoding and then I want to combine the errors with some other result, I would probably have a separate function that handles the JSON decoder and just find this is how you decode the JSON and then call that from a different pipeline that's managing the results. Again, back to that idea of a single level of abstraction. I have a function that defines, here's how we interact with JSON, and the other one that says, here's how we then like read the JSON and handle the errors. You get to some really interesting patterns with, with sort of deriving these things too. So another thing I've noticed is that a lot of these sort of, um, you know, mappable, you know, APIs will... I mean, if, if you have, if you have map two, what can you derive from it? You know, you, 
you mentioned oh, that you it, can... that is magical yeah the moment you introduce map two yeah like so many things become possible yeah yeah it's it's pretty neat like one of the things that i've found like i've been doing um you know i've got this um l markdown parsing library and I've had a lot of fun sort of building up transformations because it's really fun in like a typed language to deal with any sort of abstract syntax tree, whether it's Markdown or, or something else. And um, so I'm finding myself, you know, doing operations where you like, you know, you want to count the number of headings or you want to like take all of the level two headings and, you know, um, capture those. And, and so that, that's like, you know, you might want to do like a fold left over them. And that's just derived from map two, or you might want to. Uh... Well, the fold is not derived from from map two. Uh, it is its own thing. But you can com- There's a combination of fold and map two that becomes really, really powerful. I think that's what you're uh, pointing towards. Uh huh. So this goes typically under the name of a sequence or combine in various Elm libraries. But if you have, say, a list of maybes. And you would like you don't want to check each of them individually. You say, give me back just one single maybe that's either nothing if any of the items were missing, or just the list of all the present values if they were all present. And that's where you would fold map two. I've used it using the remote data pattern. Uh, it's really useful to know if all of the if you have a, a list of remote data values, it's useful to see are they all uh, successful or, or are any of them pending or failed. Uh, so it gives you like an aggregate status of all these independent uh, remote datas. And if they're all successful, then you get a list of all the successful values. So it's super, super convenient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Combine is, a, is an awesome helper. And I imagine you're using it in your markdown parser where you say, oh, I have a list of parsers. Can you sort of turn that into a parser that gives me a list of things? You know, I don't think I expose a combine function for, but maybe I should. But uh, I I am in uh, Elm Pages. I have this data source API used to be static HTTP, which is sort of like a declarative description of like getting HTTP data. So it's not a command. It's something that you can sort of just have when you load a page. And uh, anyway, combine is super helpful there because you'll have all these different data sources that you want to combine into a list. And that's a super handy function. So I'm confused. Is it combine or is it sequence that is usual? I think he's saying it's a synonym. Yeah, the the two names okay. are used in, in Elm. So for example, uh, in the core library, there's a task.sequence, which takes a list of tasks and just sort of squashes it down into a single task that will succeed if all the child tasks uh, succeed. But you might see and say the re- uh, remote data I think uses actually remote data I think uses from list and then like the result extra maybe extra use combine yeah I think that's maybe one of the uh, disadvantages of not having type classes yes is that it allows the same function to have different names which sometimes is nice because uh, there might, a more domain specific name might make more sense in the context of one library but it makes it maybe a little bit harder to see some of these patterns across multiple uh, modules. Well, having type classes wouldn't prevent you from adding a new function that does the same thing anyway. But it would enforce that if something is applicative, it must have this function with this name. And I, so I, I think it would be really interesting to, to explore like having a sort of community resource of an Elm review rule where you can sort of have some little at directive in a... Um, in a doc comment in a module and say this is applicative or you know whatever whatever term we want to use but just to to sort of 
have it remind you, oh, you, but you don't expose a function named this. Maybe you maybe you meant to do that. So another thing that, that Map2 uh, allows, and we already touched a little bit on it with, with pipeline APIs and combining, but it can just be uh, a really powerful way of cleaning up code. And I had this magical experience a while back. Uh, I was helping somebody else on a JavaScript project where they needed to parse sort of like uh, Excel style formulas, which are you know, more or less just like prefix functions that, that can be nested arbitrarily. And we came up with something that's a little bit clunky. I think it might have been some kind of recursive function that would consume a string and try to uh, build a tree out of it. And I wondered if I could do something in Elm that would be nicer. And I started with uh, just re-implementing the same approach that we had in JavaScript in uh, Elm, uh, where I'm parsing a, a string. But I also had introduced the idea of a result type just because Elm has that and JavaScript doesn't. Um, so each sort of step, I would try to parse a, a chunk of the string and then return a result if it was bad uh, and otherwise keep going. And it was this giant nested case expression, which my second step was saying, okay, well, there's a bunch of steps where I can say it can either be a uh, like a function name, uh, like add or subtract. It can be an open parenthesis. It can be an inner expression. It can be a closed parenthesis. Uh, and those were all nested case expressions. Uh, what if I broke them out into functions? And so I broke them all out into functions with this really tedious signature where it's like string to tuple of remaining string and result of like the type we've parsed so far. Or It was just really tortuous. Uh, but at least it flattened my case expressions a little bit because now um, all of the bodies were broken out into functions, which is that rule of abstraction I talked about earlier separate doing code from branching code. And then I started realizing, wait a minute, this signature of like string to this awful tuple shows up all the time. And if we think about it, that's effectively what a parser is, is turning a string into some structured value, or you know, some less structured value, in this case a string, into a more structured value and uh, possibly an error. Uh, which is why I had that result. Um, and in this case, I had to keep track of the remaining string because uh, you don't parse everything all at once. And so I took that and aliased it to parser and just cleaned up all the signatures. And it looked a lot nicer, but I was still having to do all this casing to sort of combine the things together. And this is where the light bulb starts going off. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm doing all this casing on the result, all on this like tuple result thing to see can I combine these different pieces together? Wouldn't it be nice if I had a way to just, now that they're called parsers, just combine two parsers together? Hmm. <laughs> Could I define a map to function? Oh. And it was a, it's a little bit mind-bending to define a map to function over like functions of tuples of results. But because I had aliased it to just parser A, I knew, oh, I know how to define a map to over parser A. I defined that, and that's when the magic happened. Because all of a sudden, I could eliminate all those case expressions and just very cleanly uh, combine all those uh, extracted functions that I had together in a fairly flat way. And then, of course, knowing that I can use map2 to, to implement and map, I did that to give myself a parsing pipeline API, uh, which turned out to be really, really nice. Uh, and then sort of in the vein of what the JSON decode pipeline does, where you can sort of layer on a little bit of extra behavior or meaning on top of that 
when you're parsing, sometimes you want to parse a value and then like actually create a, a, a value out of it. And sometimes you just want to make sure that something is there in the string, but you want to move on. So you might want to consume a value or you might want to actually like parse something uh, out of it. I don't know if you might, you might call that keep and consume or something like that. So that's effectively what I did. I had like a domain specific variations on and map. Uh, and I, I think I called them keep and consume that allowed me to have a very flat pipeline that was just like, oh, start by attempting to parse a function name, then uh, just consume an open parenthesis, then sort of recursively uh, attempt to parse another expression, uh, and then uh, try to parse a, or consume a closing parenthesis. And just it all fell into place from this like, really tangled nested mess of case expressions and nested functions into this beautiful API, and it's all because of Map2. And that was uh, the sort of very iterative approach that I took, and sort of, I was aware of some of these concepts because I've used a lot of JSON decoders before, but I wasn't really comfortable with parsing strings. But that experience of sort of sort of stumbling into uh, what I guess you might call parser combinators, which I guess really, all of a sudden, that term made so much sense for me, because... I had these parsers already. This is little functions I had already extracted for parse this string into a function name or a parenthesis. And then I implemented map2 and a couple other functions that allowed me to combine parsers together. And boom, all of a sudden I had in, I don't know, probably less than 100 lines of Elm built a parsing library. That was really magical and mind-blowing. And then just for fun, I checked the Elm parser library, which it actually has a pipeline syntax uh, it uses special operators, uh, but it's effectively and map. Uh, that's like pipe dot and pipe equals, which are equivalent to my specialized operators for like parse and consume. And it was basically the same code. Uh, so I sort of stumbled into something that was very similar to the official Elm, uh, Elm parse library. So it was a really fun exercise for me. I learned a lot. I feel like I learned how parsing works. I got way more comfortable with some, some new facets of Map2. The idea of combinators in general, uh, I think I gained a new level of understanding. Uh, the combination of parsers and combinators as like two pieces that really play well together. Yeah, it was a really magical experience. I stayed up late into the night and it was just like, <laughs> oh, another light bulb moment. Uh, like every, and I, I think I created probably like four or five LEs that I created like for each step <laughs> in that process. Uh, and it was amazing. Yeah. I'm now very curious. Did you backport that to the JavaScript version? Um, I didn't directly, but I, uh, I was helping somebody else on their project. And I shared the, the Elm equivalents, uh, which got the, the other person interested in looking up at JavaScript parsing uh, or parser combinator libraries, uh, which they were then able to refactor our original solution into something uh, using the, the JavaScript parser combinator library that was very similar to what I ended up with in Elm. Hmm, that's cool. Yeah, I, I think like combinator is such a uh, an intimidating word, but really the concept is something that like, I mean, if, if you've spent a lot of time using some of the basic tools that Elm gives us like decoders, it's gonna, it's a very familiar concept of breaking down a problem into small sub problems and then building it up into something more complex by using these sort of combining functions. That's all it is. And it's a very, it's funny because when you start to like think about the internals and definitions, it seems so complicated. But when you do it, 
it's so natural and it's so easy to do it well. Because basically, like, the conclusion I've come to is that it's basically the difference between, like, imperative transformations and declarative transformations. That's basically what a combinator is, is it's like a declarative way of describing a transformation, which can then be built out of, like, basically, they're the primitive transformation building blocks and these compound ones where you can combine them together. That's all it is. And it's a very natural pattern. Anytime you want, you have like two pieces of data that you'd want to work with and you're wondering, oh, I need to combine them. And it might be, I have two maybes. I want both of, I want to do some operation on both of those to get a new maybe back. That might be one way to do it. And that would be a, a combinator. Um, I think that the two types of combinators that I needed to implement for this parsing library, one was a way to combine two pieces together to say, I want to do parse this piece of data and also this other piece of data. Uh, but also, uh, sometimes you want to say, attempt to parse it this way, or if that fails, also attempt to parse it this other way. If you've done JSON decoding, you'll be familiar with like the one of where you give it a list of decoders and it will try all of them. And whichever succeeds first is the one that's used. Um, and I implemented one of those uh, for my little parser. And that's also a, a form of combinator. Yeah, we, we talked about this on our Elm parser episode, but there is a really interesting thing that when you're coming from experience using JSON decode, and then you go use the Elm parser library, it's kind of counterintuitive because you, you use one of and you're like, wait a minute, the one of just failed on the first thing in my one of that had three different options. And so it's interesting because the semantics are different between one of in JSON decode and one of in Elm parser. And right, because you have the, the idea of committing versus backtracking. Exactly. Which is like another layer to learn. Yes. And and I, I don't I don't think that's necessarily a a law of a particular pattern, but it, it just goes to show that you can sort of, you know, perhaps like follow these same patterns, but have slightly different semantics. Well, um I think we've uh, we've covered applicatives pretty well. I'm sure there's more we could say, but uh but Joel, thanks again for joining us. And if people want to uh, get some more of your, your good knowledge, uh, where can they follow you and where can they learn more? So uh, they can follow me on Twitter at Joel Ken, J-O-E-L-Q-U-E-N. They can also go to um, the ThoughtBot blog. That's uh, the place I work at. Uh, I have a lot of articles there talking about Elm and also other things. So that would be uh, thoughtbot.com slash blog slash authors slash Joel dash Kenville. That's probably easier to link than to try to spell out. <laughs> if you click around to some tags or search, you'll find it too. Yeah. Then there's there are a lot of a uh, lot of great Elm blog posts there. It's definitely worth checking out. Yeah. And a lot of them probably uh, connect to the topic we talked to today because mm-hmm. there's so many sort of foundational aspects that overlap into this topic of applicatives. Um, and mm-hmm. so there's a lot of articles I've written over over time that connect to this. Yeah. Yeah. You also gave a really great talk about uh, random generators. That might be uh, relevant here for people curious to learn more. Yeah. Yeah. There's also, I've talked about random generators and Map2 and how that works there. I've given a talk with Maybe and how Map2 works there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, maybe this whole time I was just trying to get everyone to be excited about Map2. <laughs> it is the best function. Well, it worked for me. I'm amped up. Well, thank you so much again. And uh, Jeroen? Have a good one. Have a good one. 